Hello, hometown crowd. (laughs) So I have had somewhat of a panic-stricken day. Um, I came up to Brisbane yesterday with my kids so they could have a little bit of time with their cousins and I was having a very relaxed morning. I hadn't actually given a single thought to Annabelle Crabb or this show tonight. Next minute, the phone goes and it's a text from Annabelle Crabb saying, oh my God, Qantas just cancelled my 1pm flight. And so I've then gone into a complete panic state about the prospect of having to do a one-woman show (laughs) for all of you people tonight, until, of course, I realised that that is my dream. (laughs) Um, So I thought, oh, my God, I better get a plan B going. Who could I ring who could fill that seat and be just a seamless fill-in for Annabelle Crabb. You know, who would just have exactly the right vibe, the same sensibilities, you know, that that would be in Queensland that I could call on at short notice. And so, you know, of course, I thought Kevin Rudd. Um, So I I rang Kevin, um, or or more accurately, I should say, I just took Kevin off hold. And, um, you know, being Kevin, he was, of course, available. Um, But then I thought, I don't know, I think we could do better than a former Prime Minister. I mean, had he become UN Sec General? Sure. You know, he might have reached the Chat 10 standard. Um, So I thought, okay, another, another, like, really well-known Queenslander with a big kind of Annabelle Crabb vibe. Um, So I thought, you know, Jonathan Thurston. Um, I rang Jonathan. I thought, oh, it's a bit obvious, you know. He's so like Crabb, it's a little bit obvious. Um, So... You know, just as I was going down the list and I got to Anastasia Palaszczuk, um, who kind of has the right hair these days, um, I thought, um, let me just check the phone one last time. I've picked it up. There's a text from Annabelle Crabb. She's made her flight. Would you please welcome Annabelle Crabb? (laughs) Well, hello. Look, there were nervous moments. We were all a bit triggered from the last time we had a total, total debacle it's getting to Brisbane. something about Brisbane. We have trouble getting to Brisbane often. Yeah. And, I mean, remember the time we turned up at the Tivoli and we were so late due to weather that everybody was there and we had to walk through the theatre with our suitcases... <laughs> And like from the and, front door, <laughs> and nobody had like you know normally you just like turn up and you know do your hair a bit lippy and stuff like that. None of that at all. Uh, just two women who had recently been crying, who <laughs> looked like the absolute robber's dog, walking through the theatre. It was uh, it was magical, magical entertainment really. Anyway, um, so let me get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way. So of the f- course, straight to the housekeeping. So <laughs> Fun's over, people. So the, the first thing was, because it's a hometown crowd, my brother's friend Amber's here, and so Glenn said to tell her that you owe him breakfast. So just getting the family messages the out of the way straight away. out of the way. Um, <laughs> you um, did try and get Glenn to come up here and replace me on stage, and he's I like, I have no idea what your stupid podcast is about. <laughs> I've never listened to it. It sounds dumb. No. I, I still think the visual of him coming on stage would have been hilarious, though, because he is a six-foot-tall, six-foot-four orange head buzz cut with 
sleeve tats down both arms. I think that would have been really Very funny. my vibe. <laughs> As everyone would know, with our live shows, we always have a charity that we give a portion of our proceeds to. And so I'll just tell you a little bit about that for tonight. Um, it's the Smith Family's Learning for Life program. Um, yeah, so... And... Uh, there are some um, representatives from that program here tonight, so thank you very much for coming. So um, it's a program that's been running for a while and they've done some um, looking at it and found that it really does work. And it's a program that offers additional support to kids from a disadvantaged background to help them get through education or to make the transition from education to jobs. It provides financial assistance. It provides um, you know, peer support, mentor support and all of that kind of thing. And it really is making a difference. So that's what we've chosen to back tonight. Um, I wanted to tell you, before we get into the meat and potatoes of the show, something that I found this Sorry, week. I'm, as a vegetarian, I'll be very interested <laughs> in the potatoes, be a bit puzzled by the meat offering, but sure, go for it. Something that happened to me this week that I found extremely amusing. So on Can I just interrupt yes. uncharacteristically and just say that this had better be an amazing story because... <laughs> Sometimes Sales gets into this sort of like weird, self-entertaining, tittering sort of thing where she's like, oh. <laughs> well, that time she made me dress up as Brian May. Like, that was um, cold. What are you talking it about? Just, she was in hysterics for like a year before that <laughs> happened. And she texted the other day and said, oh, the funniest things just happened and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save it till we're on stage so that I can enjoy your reaction. I'm like, well, do you think? I mean, will it be that interesting, do you think? So, oh. And she's been all sort of like snuffed to itself and kind of like going <laughs> so okay go for it okay thanks thank you kind of wishing Jonathan Thurston was here um so I'm sitting in a doctor's surgery on Wednesday afternoon and my phone rings and it's not a number that's in my you know book it's not it's not a name that comes up it's just a, a number and I, I don't just don't I don't pick up if it's not someone that I It's a mobile number or a landline? A mobile number. Okay. And it goes, I see that it's left a voicemail. So I think, oh, well, it must be someone who wanted to speak with me. So I listened to the voicemail. And so I just, what I, so what I should say is when you get through to my voicemail, what you hear is something like, hello, you've reached Lee Sales at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Please leave a message. I say the full thing because sometimes I'm ringing contacts in America and they think ABC's American ABC, so you get the full, you get the full, you know, Lee Sales treatment when you get my voicemail, right? So I then listen to the voicemail message, and this is what it says. So here's, here I go, play. <laughs> oh, it's, not, it's not playing. <laughs> this is a killer anecdote so far. <laughs> Hang on, let me, let me try it again. Uh, we have actually rehearsed this. We did I mean, rehearse it. Okay. Weirdly enough, hey, yeah. Okay, hang on, here we go. We sales? Surely not. I got on this call from this number. You want to give me a call back? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so the person's, like, obvious, like... What? <laughs> really made me laugh very hard. And so I forwarded it to my friend Lisa Miller and said, oh, this really made me laugh. And she replied, um, and we were sort of, she's like, are you going to reply? I'm like, oh, I don't think so. I don't know. Anyway, I decided, the person then tried to ring me again and I let it go to voicemail again. And then I thought, okay, I'll, I'll reply. So I've replied, 
It is Lee Sales, but I didn't try to call you. Your voicemail made me laugh so hard, though, at your shock that it was me. And the person replied, oh, sorry, I got a missed call from your number. I'm a big fan and I nearly fell over when I got your voicemail message. (laughs) Very odd. But I love your work and I miss you on 7.30. (laughs) And I've replied, oh, ha-ha, that's very kind, thank you. And then a few minutes later, they sent a screenshot with my number, missed call, circled and said, I promise I'm not a creep, I really did get a missed call from you. I replied, that is so weird because it's not showing up on my phone. Lisa Miller said I should have rung you back live at our Chat 10 show in Brisbane on Friday night. (laughs) The person replies, this can't be real. (laughs) I said, it is. Can I ring you on Friday night from the stage with crap? It'll be bloody funny. (laughs) But no pressure. (laughs) They've replied, um, well, that would be so dreamy. (laughs) I've replied, Haha, okay, we're on stage in Brisbane at 8pm. I'll run it past Crab when we're working out the show at 6pm on Friday night and then I'll let you know. Where are you, by the way? You're not in Brisbane, are you? We could sling you a ticket if there are any left. (laughs) The person replied, I just looked up and you are having a live show on Friday, August the 26th. (laughs) Is this really real? it. I've replied, it is. I've then sent them a photo of myself to show. (laughs) What are you doing in the photo, mate? I was wearing a face mask at the doctor's (laughs) surgery. (laughs) With my son. You look like Eileen Wuornos. My face was like, it's me. (laughs) So then I've said, I'm just waiting for my son in a doctor's surgery, hence the mask. And then the person's replied, I live on the Gold Coast. Yes, I'd totally love to come up. And so they're here. So yeah. now, where, I think, I'm not sure if your name's pronounced Cheval or um, Cheval. Where are you? Because oh, it's right got, in the middle. Anyone? Brilliant placement. Okay, can you come in? <laughs> Do you reckon you can come out? Come down. Oh, my God, that is hilarious. We've got, we've got a bag of merch from you. Come up the side here. There's some stairs. Is this a breach of etiquette? Probably. probably. We've got a merch bag um, to give her, which is actually Gwen's done some new merch, and this is the, actually the very first of this bag that's going out. Um, and Gwen, of course, stairs. held me down out the back and you know, threatened to kill me unless I said that the merch was on sale <laughs> on level two at the end of the show. Um, but come out. I didn't warn her that I was going to do this. <laughs> So, well, you, why don't you, why don't you just, quiz? You, you can and I'm just take over. prepared me. No, yeah. but if we prepared you, you would have been horrified yeah. and frightened. Yes. And yes, now no, the shock of this, it won't start, it's like a third degree burn, it won't hurt okay. straight away. <laughs> so, um, I just, did we ever get to the bottom of where this call came from? Because you, you got no, this call. the weirdest thing, because it really was my number on your phone and now, I didn't I've met you. your youngest son and I suspect... It's not in the call log, so I don't... I, feel I like have no idea how it happened. I was telling my friend Ray, she's in the car that, that I brought along today, but um, I actually, earlier that day, had an email from a teacher about an incident that happened at school. Oh, my God. And so I thought it was... Someone oh. from the school, because I would never usually... Ring to bust your ass about. That's exactly oh right. Oh, Yes. And then I, I was, like, ringing through, being like, Uh-oh. I'll leave a voicemail. And then I thought... <laughs> I, I knew immediately. 
into my kids' misconduct. Shit. I was like, I like immediately a... thought it was a scammer. <laughs> and I was like, the AI is so intelligent <laughs> that they now know that, you know, my girl crushes lightly <laughs> sales. That is so nice. No, no, honestly, and I still, and I remember in the, one of the texts you write because COS, and I was like, Lisa, we never write because. Oh. <laughs> this is a scam. Did you do right? that? The Lisa, I know, we never write because. We're COS. She's on leave. She's on but leave. But also that you lived on the Gold Coast. Like, that was so the other. Crazy. It's just so bizarre. Yeah. So, that, hence why I just felt like this is a really good story for the Friday night show. <laughs> okay, well, that. I will pay your tittering and kind of carrying on because this is an extremely good yeah. anecdote. Well, thank you for coming up. Thank and you thank so you. much. And for being polite enough to return my non-call. <laughs> can we just do? Can we do an on-stage selfie for you just to like? Oh, yes. oh yeah. So that you can, so that you can always show that it we'll actually get the tall was. Tall person to take yeah. it. All right. Now you take it. I'm you're hopeless tall. at taking Are selfies. You? Right, yeah, well, I am. Well, but, okay. Hang on. Well, hang you on. Are can you squish in? Yeah. I don't. It's, you'd think I have. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> We've got your number, mate. <laughs> okay, that yeah. is very funny. Well, know, it was absolutely hilarious. So it's a mystery, go. and that was delightful. There you, well, go. there you go. There you go. Sales anecdote lives up to promo. <laughs> um, right. <sighs> okay, so. The real part of the show. It's been a lovely evening. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so we do have. We don't often have a guest for the Brisbane show, but we do have a guest tonight, and it's also come about in a bit of a serendipitous kind of way. During um, COVID, everyone who listens to the podcast would probably know we banged on quite a lot about our, you know, concern for the arts and that the arts wasn't. We're very well concerned for the arts during this troubled time. <laughs> Periodically, we got together via Zoom to fret about the arts. <laughs> Uh. Um, and we, to try to sort of show our support and to, to remind people to support artists, when we tried to get a couple of Chat 10 shows happening in Sydney, um, when we were trying to surprise each other, one of my surprise guests... Was doomed, of course. One of my surprise guests was going to be the principal cellist for the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, um, Umberto Clarici, who is a wonderful, wonderful musician. And he was lined up twice, and twice our shows got screwed by COVID. And so in the interim, Umberto was appointed chief conductor for the Queensland Symphony Orchestra, which is an incredible uh, pickup for Queensland. Um, and he sort of, during the COVID period, actually transitioned from being, you know, an instrumentalist to being a conductor. Anyway, so it just seemed like, well, given that he's coming to the QSO uh, from the start of next year, it seemed like, oh, well, this is meant to happen. He's meant to do the, the Brisbane show, not the Sydney show. So would you please welcome the maestro, Umberto <laughs> Clarici.
I was wondering what was going to happen with the cello after the performance. It's just going to be... This is like Richard Tognetti with his $50 billion violin that just sort of went on the floor after the performance and every single person's going, oh, my God, wait. I notice he's keeping it well away from you. He is. <laughs> and that... Also, this is not a microphone cable. Oh. It's a chain, so actually it's oh. attached to my femur. <laughs> is that a terrifying in instrument that you have to keep with you at all times? Is it... I mean, you know what? In theory, yes, but in, in, violinists are obsessed about right. obsessed. In a way, if, if in a way, if you think it's true, imagine a, a burglar comes into a place. They don't know what is it. They don't know how much it costs. You see a TV and a computer and a Rolex. I don't have a Rolex, but I probably should buy in order to uh, mischief. Uh, <laughs> And then they see a violin, they don't know it's a violin, but it's quite, you know, it's a nice place. Let's take it. They see this in a box, yeah. say, oh, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure I Looks can annoying. sell this. Yeah. So 
Also, you know, you, when you walk down the street with this in a carbon fiber case, you can't really, some, sometimes in buses, when I took the bus and was, they ask, it's a, it's a nice bag. Yes, it's a nice bag. I'm a Ninja Turtle too. You know, it's like, so I'm not obsessed because it's hard work also for a bar burglar, not just for me to travel with it. Yeah, you're not, you're not getting it easily out the window, are you? It's no, going to be exactly. quite a bit of effort. Imagine what the piccolo players must be like, just like absolutely <laughs> pissing themselves the whole time with their billion dollar, you know, priest carved piccolo. No, I'll stop that there. No. So, so why, um, with all the technology that we've got today and all of the, you know, amazing things that we can do, why for musical instruments is still having an old musical instrument, the primo thing? I have my own idea. I played many different cellos until I could afford to buy one, old. The first thing is physical, in the sense that the wood gets drier and drier, lose the, all the resins and um, water, so it becomes more Until and more... Until you move to Queensland, mate. Yes, no, that, that's... Exactly. He's having a second youth in Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's 300 years old, now it's... it's so, it becomes more more hollow. The second thing is that because the vibration through the strings gets spread more and more, then it vibrates more and more. So that's physical and it's a part of it. Another one is the craftsmanship. You know, when you go to the countryside and there is an old farmer that looks at the sky completely clear and says, tomorrow at 12 is going to rain. And you open Google and Apple say, no, they don't say, and tomorrow at 12 is going to rain. At the time, the new elements, like the wood, much better. You cut a tree and say, ah, this is going to be a great cello. Now we have computers and this, so we don't trust anymore the knowledge of elements. And the other one is, in a way, metaphysical. You know, um, it's a travel machine to me, because it comes from a time in which values were different, in which the idea of sound. It has 250 years of people playing on it. So it has a soul, you know, traveling in, in a hotel and you practice and the mute uh, and then you go in, on stage and you share with it for 200 So it's actually, it's not my cello. I'm his cellist because... <laughs> <laughs> that is a very beautiful way of explaining it. And I've got to say, like, when you were just warming up, you know, in the dressing room before, it was arresting. It just has a sound that sounds... Warm, what? it's almost alive. Yeah. So you said you're his cellist, so is it a, a guy? <laughs> yeah, because in Italian he's il violoncello, so we don't have neutral, anything is neutral in Italy. Okay. So, is that my, uh, so la viola, the viola is feminine, but the cello is... Uh, so I call him he. Now, yeah, so it's got more of a man spread <laughs> than a viola, I guess, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so well, yeah, sorry, I analysed a few times, because, you know, when you come on stage as a cellist, you, you put the end pin down so you can turn. So you, with an orchestra, when you play solo, you're by yourself in front of it. And in a way, you're screened by the cello because it covers. And so it's like it's your megaphone, your voice. You don't face, you hug it. And he is your, it's not of, uh, after body. I don't know how to, I, I invent a lot of words. So, it's, so you have to be creative. <laughs> We can make a book on the, the word, <laughs> the neologisms. Yeah. Now, I have a question for you, if you'll forgive me, about orchestra etiquette, because earlier on in our podcast, Lee Sales made a very rude remark about <laughs> tuba players. 
and <laughs> and I wonder, and I know that there is a culture of orchestras, and there are some players of various instruments that get reputations, right? So, who is the natural enemy of the cellist? Oh yeah, good in question. the orchestra, yeah. Oh, Who do you now, laugh at? Now we have policies for everything. I think this is already legal. Oh, <laughs> and now you're a conductor. I'm basically asking you to commit career suicide. It's, it's, exactly. No, usually historic is the viola. You know? But it, just historically, in the sense that, you know, you could play the times or many years ago. If you couldn't play really well the violin, then say, okay, let's try the viola. It's... <laughs> It's like, yeah. it's like a little bit, okay, you can really drive a car, let's try a van. Without thinking that you could be much more dangerous on that. You know, it's like... And now, it became more of a lifestyle, the viola, in the sense that you can hide behind these jokes and these stereotypes. Right. And practice half of the violins, violinists, and still... You know, lifestyle because you can a have a second life. Well, I think I think Limelight Magazine now has its splash for next week. <laughs> so, um, so tell us about this transition to then being a conductor. It started like curiosity, a little bit like a joke, and then completely, I lost it. I mean, I, I don't know how it went so quickly. And so suddenly... Yeah, it's unbelievable it, that, you, like you, that you're now the chief conductor here. After, you only started conducting five seconds ago. Five seconds ago, I yes. Know. Six. <laughs> Picked up a chopstick you know, like, one night, next minute... It's like, I put a cello in the washing machine and it's reduced. It was too hot. <laughs> reduced to a baton. <laughs> but, but before you answer that, sorry, because, you know, I mean, you know what, how we roll, which is we're going to ask you questions and we're just going to answer them ourselves. But uh, the, I, um, I have seen you conduct and you are... I mean, look, I know nothing about it, but... Um, you have a very arresting stage presence when you come on. Like, and, and, like as, a, as an audience member, I do love watching the conductor and, and there are certain people that you just feel like you've got a presence and I feel like you do. The, the, thank you. But the paradox is that I try, after played this instrument by myself for so many years, I try, because, you know, I don't think the conductor is the most important at all, is the least important in the show of the concert. During the rehearsal, you know, you put together... Uh, you have the entire instruments in your score, but each instrument has their own part. So you put it together, you give a narrative and the speed and the passion or, you know, the character. But in the concert, you are facing the orchestra that I love because it's the opposite of what I did with this. So you have the contact with them. But in theory, you are the least important because you give your shoulders to the audience. Despite of that, I understand that is quite of a show. Yeah. That's why the flicking of the tailcoat yes. is so crucial. crucial. Don't you find? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's crucial. It's like everybody say, can we move on from the tails? No. I mean, <laughs> then the conductor doesn't make any sense. No, no. But, okay, so you got hooked. So what, you said like you kind of just got hooked into it. Like why? So the orchestra, which... Uh, whom, maybe. I played for many years in Sydney Symphony Orchestra at the Opera House. I came here for that. Uh, asked me, do you want to do a concert? And I say, why would you? Because you can't really book a real conductor for this. It's at the Opera House, but it's not really a concert. So, thank you. So, why? <laughs> that's, a, that's a lovely invitation. Yeah. And, and it's true. They told me, you know, because you always have this when I played in the orchestra, I always was looking around. I, I learned by heart very quickly and looking around and trying to play with the flute and with the double bass. And so I was always trying to 
uh, interact. And I always had a score. So I said, well, you always have a score, you might know a little bit. Plus, it's better to have a good musician that's a bad conductor, that a bad conductor is also a bad musician. So I said, fine, thank you, it's low, the bar is really low. <laughs> But then that is the thing, I study for a few, because you have to relearn. It's not just a different job, you need to have an overall idea. And, but also your movements are different. You know, I started to play the cello when I was five. So when I have a ins musical instinct, I go with this movement oh. because, you know. But the baton has, you have the same instincts, but a completely different sets of movements. So I studied, I went in front of the orchestra, we did this concert, and usually your colleagues with whom you play for years and... Uh, are brutal? Brutal. <laughs> and, and because I played in orchestra for so many years, I agree with that. <laughs> so I said, guys, I mean, be brutal, that's fine. I mean, I also, I can take it, but I agree with you, you know. After the concert, the musicians, my colleagues says, no, no, you have to continue, we are going to support you. Oh. Say, so, okay, something went weird. So they gave me... Uh, Two or three projects the year after, it was three years ago, the year before COVID. I did some these, you know, regional tours, sm smaller, even if more important. It's more important to play regional for somebody that listened once in their life, a Beethoven symphony, that in London when you can hear every two months. So, so you know, important is a different purpose and different... But I did that and then the other orchestra said, well, if Sydney Symphony Orchestra is giving this guy some... less." And then the next year I had invitations, like, and then it completely slipped off my hands, and now I didn't play the cello for six months. And, you've, and he said to me, he, he literally has done a heap of practice just to come and do this for us and has tolerated the... Yeah. So thank you very much. Well, you, Lee knows, you know, for the, Lee knows what it means to push the strings <laughs> of a cello. I've started learning. Yes. Very exciting. My fingers are also killing me. I mean, you know, when I play that piece, it's, you know... Yes, get, I know, I know, sore. I know. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, with the conducting, I mean, I ask this because, you know, as a keen student of music, I just frankly cannot make head nor tail of what they're doing. Are there any universal kind of moves that, like, if you go... Yes. ...it means something? Well, so... The baton yep. is a baton simply because the orchestra became bigger and bigger and so some of the instruments, like horns, trombones, the percussions, are so far away that... It, they need a point to focus the, their own uh, attention, you know? So it's a, a clear point, and the baton hand, the right hand usually, is the tempo. So you have to be steady, because, you know, in rock, hip-hop, you have a drum kit, but we have a timpani that's not necessarily only a drum. Sometimes you don't have a drum kit. So you need somehow a tempo, and if the bar is in, you know, four movements, three movements. So this is independent, okay? The other hand, does everything else in a way, you know, less, more, crescendo, long, short, or if somebody enters in the wrong place, you, you do, oh, <laughs> and then, please. Oh, my God. <laughs> so is that just, that's just the symbol of shame, because you're oh. just saying, listen, you buffoon. <laughs> that's right. Wrong that's place. Right. Oh. Violas. <laughs> no, yeah, a, a, a more polite or political version of that is like this. It's very Italian. <laughs> when you take the baton and you do with two hands, that is you are in trouble. <laughs> and so if you're just zoning out, I mean, you know, now that we're, we know each other and we're asking um, direct questions, uh, Umberto, 
if you were, say, I don't know, incredibly hungover and you were just sort of phoning it in. The musician um, or the conductor? Is that, as a conductor? Oh, yeah. 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 So is there a sort of an, a f- like, autopilot mode where you just kind of like... Yes. I could be doing anything right yeah. now? <laughs> no, you know, the thing is when you play, you play during the concert. I mean, you know, there's a typical thing at home, is everybody's good, but then when you are on stage by yourself without a stand, you have to play. As a conductor, in a way, you have all the rehearsal to, is it not to train the orchestra, but to put the orchestra in the space to be more and more independent. To me, the orchestra is about independence and give them a scaffolding in which each of them can be free, in a way. I mean, and you know, because I played a lot in the orchestra, I think that it's much stronger if everyone puts a little bit of themselves instead of following directions and clear, you know, you have to do like this. So Sounds like a recipe for complete chaos. Chaos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you see, when you, they are all extremely trained, but we are trained to be individualists. And then you enter in an orchestra, it's suddenly you have to be in a box because you have to, you know, blend and cue when we are 80. Why? Who said that? I mean, it's a, we need a plan, so we go there, not just... I mean, also I'm Italian, everything is messy, so any kind of organization <laughs> is already a plus, you know, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, frankly, who doesn't just want to go to the QSO every week now with this guy? <laughs> um, so, um, the Queensland Symphony has actually very kindly, um, in honour of you doing this show um, with us tonight, given us a, a code for all chatters to be able to have 20% off going to the QSO for the rest of this year. Um, the code is VIOLA. No, it <laughs> no it's not. It's not. It should have been. No, the, ca- the code is all capital letters chat QSO. So if you go and buy tickets to the QSO and put that code and we'll put it on our um, website. That is a handsome gesture. It's a very nice yeah. gesture of the QSO. So thank you for... <laughs> yes. Would you please thank Umberto Clarici for oh. joining us? <laughs> excellent dude. I just would have kept him here all night, know, frankly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, that was for cello breaks. That was, yeah, I mean, you, you guys are very lucky up here to have someone of that quality coming in. It's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's really shown I'm, up I'm the uh, dodgy quality of the, uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> the standard presenting. <clears throat> um, almost thought I'd suggest getting you across that cello to bang out a few of your uh, <laughs> no, scales. No, anyway. No. Hey, listen, the other thing I forgot, I remember just now when we were saying go buy tickets to the QSO because A and B, 20% off, yay. I forgot that we were also supposed to mention that Gwen is selling merch. I, oh. I did when oh, did you, you were off helping. Oh, I was off stage. Yeah, All I right, said okay. Gwenny, Gwenny's going to go back after the show for right. um, a little bit of... For some reason, she's not allowed to sell her own merch here. No, it's the rules. She's like Other Al Capone. She's got to, like, you know, they'll, yeah. they'll get her for mail fraud But she's just going to loiter like, with intent. So if, if your whole reason that you want to buy merch is just because you want to talk to Gwen, which, you know, that's why I'd buy Fair it. Fair enough, yeah. Um, yeah, she'll be just hanging around up there. That's so. why I'm drowning in bunt pins, just because just <laughs> want to hang out with Gwen. But it's on level two, which is sort of like a counterintuitive level to yeah. be on. So if you're looking around for it, level two. And Gwen that's will be it is. Yeah. hanging around. I okay, did, that's enough I, of that. As previously mentioned, I did, did tell everyone this earlier. <laughs> just a pat. 
passive-aggressive way of just making sure that you've told me that not once but twice uh, and just making sure that everybody knows that I've uh, well dropped played. the ball. Well played, lady. What do you got for me? Thank you, Violas. <laughs> um, hey, listen, um, I'm not from Brisbane or indeed Queensland, as you know, and I thought... I'm visiting, I'm going to absorb some local culture that for me consisted of going into a bookshop and snuffling around until I found a new book by a Brisbane writer and what a lucky thing because I came up with this book, it's called Her Fidelity and it's by Catherine Pollock. It is a new release and it is an absolute belter. Oh. So it's a, it's a novel but it's a, like it's sort of one of those scarcely disguised memoirs one senses because the author worked in independent record stores for many, many years and has now written her first novel, which is about a girl called Kathy who works in an independent record store. <laughs> so the independent record store of the book is called Dusty's. Is and it in West End? Where is it? Well, it's a, it's a... No, it's in the city. Oh. And... Essentially, it's an extremely funny book and it's about her experiences working in a record shop largely uh, staffed by pale men who have never been outside (laughs) and who wear a lot of black jeans, you know. And um, the adventures that she has with her friend are just hysterically well captured. It's a very funny book and I loved it. In fact, I read it so fast, I sped right through it and I highly recommend it. So, well done, Cathy. Is it um, set in, sorry, did you say, is it set in present day? Um, no, it's sort of set in about the 90s-ish, I think. So okay. I actually found it a bit nostalgic because I was sort of going to record shops and pretending that I knew the answers to questions and things. And, like, what she does <laughs> is she captures perfectly that sense that you get when you walk into a proper, proper, like, vinyl book uh, record store and you're kind of terrified that you're going to ask for the wrong thing or something that is so uncool. And she also manages to beautifully illustrate this sort of the license that record store employees have to really just disregard what you want and <laughs> and say what you actually really want this or that is so incredibly lame I'm not even going to talk to you anymore you know speaking of um record nostalgia it reminds me about um Greece and Olivia Newton-John dying and just because you know being back in my hometown being in Greece, the musical, when I was at school. Sorry? And, <laughs> and what, what? so childhood friend, childhood friend Mandy and I, who's he's here. Um, Hello, he, Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> of course, um, we used to, like, you know, so many people act out Greece in the playground. And, I mean, I can't recall... It's funny, actually, to think of how ubiquitous Greece was, right? Because we didn't have streaming or on demand, and yet everybody had seen... Greece. So I'm not quite sure how we. I don't, I don't even know when I first saw Greece because when it was released, I was, yeah, was reading this the other day and thinking, hang on a minute, I wasn't old enough to see Greece when it came out. But then somehow, at some point in my life, despite growing up in a country town with like two television channels, suddenly I just knew every word of yeah, every well, song. We but like, had my parents had the album, but um, but then we must have been watching it on VHS or something. But um, we used to you know choreograph as everyone did. We used to choreograph all the dances. Anyway, we wrote to we wrote a fan letter letter to Olivia Newton-John and one of the most exciting moments of our childhood was that she wrote back and she no. sent us she did and she sent us this little kind of merchandise pack with a photo of her and stuff anyway when she died the other day Mandy and I 
were texting and going, oh man, that's really pushing the childhood nostalgia buttons. And Mandy goes, I think I've still got the signed photo that Olivia sent us. And so she sent me later a shot of her photo album, like one of those old ones with the, you know, and she had the Olivia photo in there, which was amazing. But even funnier... <laughs> Pause while sales self-pleasures. laughing as hard as me right now is Mandy yeah, because Mandy's she knows what's it. coming. <laughs> oh. Mandy had also had <laughs> clippings of the hair. <laughs> of clippings of the hair of what? My cats. Your, your cats. She had sticky taped my. the hair of some of my childhood cats. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Sorry, Mandy, just she, like, I feel that perhaps... <laughs> she had sticky taped the hair of some of my childhood no, cats. No, no, you've said that. <laughs> you've said that a number of times now. It's not really aiding me to understand either psychology between, like... Now, so I don't... Mandy has your pussy hairs from childhood clipped off and sticky taped into the same album <laughs> as Olivia that our Livy is immortalised in. For now, shame, Mandy. <laughs> now, also, I don't know um, what happened, but there was also yes, a well, missing... I think there's a number of us in this room feeling <laughs> comparably. There's a missing lock of hair that's labelled, but it's labelled Lee. <laughs> Now, I personally have no recollection of us going around and snipping the locks, locks of cat's hair. Which but, and I, I don't know, like, I used to sleep over Mandy's house. Was she grabbing my hair in the night and, and sticking it in her photo album? I don't know. It's probably all been used for that bung DNA lab that everyone's like, yeah. Anyway, me and Mandy will talk okay. about this later. <laughs> One of these days, we'll look back on this moment and <laughs> laugh uncomfortably and move on. Anyway. So, but I... Look, tempted as I am Mandy? to pursue... <laughs> is that... Can I just hear Mandy howling? Is that, I don't know. <laughs> um, tempted as I am to get to the bottom of this, frankly, you know, frightening uh, anecdote, <laughs> I want to just jump back to your performance in Greece. Oh, yeah. I'm hoping you were Rizzo? No, I was Sandy. You were Sandy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I was oh. Sandy. I wasn't cool enough to be Rizzo. God. Um, in fact, I remember, um, you know, funnily enough, the kind of... Because we all just loved Greece, right, as I'm sure everybody here did. And so I didn't kind of think anything about, you know, the political messaging because I was 15 when we did the school musical. And um, but my friend messaging. Jeff's mum, who was actually a very conservative lady um, and a minister's wife, I remember after one of the nights of the school musical um, came up to me behind the scenes and she said, oh, that's, that's a terrible message for women that you've got to change yourself for a man. And she gave me a big... And it was actually like, oh, God, she's absolutely dead right. And it's a terrible message, that film. It's shocking. It really yeah. is. And without wanting to besmirch dear Livy's memory, it was like... I was always shocked at the last minute where she turns up in at, those... At the time you were shocked? Or, yeah. I oh, thought, see, I wasn't at all. I remember just thinking, oh, those pants are so tight. <laughs> she looks like a trollop. But also, like, 
It's interesting that Danny Zuko, yep. he capitulates too. He does. But he yeah. totally discards the... Oh, is everybody all right? Um, he, he completely discards the capitulation. Like, as soon as she turns up in the slut gear, he's like, whoa, I'm taking this, you know, knitted jumper off. And, uh, yeah, that's right. I'm returning then, to my greaser ways. Yeah. Anyway, it was... It was kind of interesting to see the huge outpouring of feeling around Olivia Newton-John dying. And I, and I, I can only kind of put it down to just the childhood nostalgia for, of everybody. And just also, like, I mean, I know this sounds so shallow because she was obviously very, very talented, but she's just so pretty. Like, you just look at her, she just makes you feel happy just looking at her because she's just so, so pretty. Don't you think? Is it just me? What am I the only person who thinks Olivia Newton-John was pretty? Well, actually, backstage um, uh, sales as part of her pre-show warm-up was uh, playing me on a loop the Xanadu film clip. <laughs> and, right, and it's actually, it's spectacular. And I, you know, I think I probably saw it on a like, countdown or whatever years and years and years ago, but she's so, um, her, the smile is like, when people say a radiant smile, that is what they mean. Like it's this Yeah, sort of, they can't, when you, they, the song goes for quite a while before you even see it a It really shot. does go for quite a while. <laughs> you finally see a shot of Olivia Newton-John and they come to her sort of framed like this. And um, she's wearing this kind of gold, it's a halter neck, I think, and she's got all the blonde, like, kind of, you know, 70s, 80s looking hair everywhere. And she just, as you say, looks really radiant. Like, there's dances, she's not moving much, and there's quite a bit of movement behind her, and it's just kind of, it almost, like, pushes you back, doesn't it? She's so, like, yep. just radiating kind of presence. We um, saw another classic film recently, together, in fact. We did, and this is actually a... Um the culmination of a, of a campaign. I mean, it's almost, almost like a military campaign on my side. I, I have been encouraging Lee for years to watch the film of Cabaret, the musical, because I just I think, well, it. how is it that this woman has not seen, like a, like a self-declared musical's nut has not seen Cabaret? I mean, it just seems just insulting, frankly. And so I, I nagged and nagged her, and eventually she said, oh, Huffing and puffing. All right, I'll, I'll find it. But of course, you can't stream it. Like no, it's, you can't, you find, can't it find it. I'm like, don't, don't be stupid. Let me have a look. No, oh, well, let me get Jeremy to have a look. And um, and nothing. And then a couple of weeks ago, I found it because it's the 50th anniversary, so it's on in cinemas. And in fact, it's on around here. I saw it was at How um, Home of the Arts on the Gold Coast, so it's probably on in Brizzy too. Um, 50th anniversary screenings on the big screen. So I said to Crab, oh my god, it's on the big screen. So she was like, we are going to that, which we did. And it was mind-blowing. It was yes. amazing. So weird, though, because I was sitting next to Sales and then she's not very demonstrative. Like, she, she sort of laughed a little bit at one point, some sort of hilarious Liza Minnelli gag. And I was like, are you enjoying this? Because, like, she's such a cussed person that, like, <laughs> it's entirely within her character to just be like, hmm, I don't know. I don't think it was that great. And I just started to feel really like, if you don't like this, I'm going to be actually super upset. Um, because, like, Jeremy and I watched that film so many times when we were first going out 100 million years ago. And, in fact, we actually somehow got two video recorders to, like, edit the videotape so that we made, like, a video that was just the songs without the acting bits in between, like pretty hardcore um so I thought if you don't like this I'm gonna like I'm gonna be just 
I'll be fine on the outside, but inside I'll be super <laughs> wounded. Um, and then at one point I like looked over and I couldn't tell if you were asleep. Oh. And I was just like, I was just sort of looking at you and I couldn't see what was going on. So, um, and then afterwards we left and I'm like, I still don't, I could hardly even speak at the end. It was, it was overwhelming. Um, I mean, Oh, geez, where do you, it's hard to even know where to start. But Liza Minnelli well, is where Liza we Liza Minnelli, start. obviously. And I mean, it's like the most obvious thing to say in the world, but I felt like I kind of understood, like, oh, right, okay, right, this is why Liza Minnelli was a superstar. And, I mean, they must have... I think I said to you as we were walking out, there were so many shots of her where you just were blown away that I felt like they must have watched the rushes even every night and gone, we are recording one of the all-time great film performances because it was just, they'd cut to her and you'd just go, oh, just incredible. But, um, and the eyelashes should have got an Oscar, you oh, know. Well, do you know, I Googled, because the look of it's so amazing, I Googled that to see, like, well, who, who came up, for example, with that, the haircut? And apparently Liza came up with that herself, that she was aping a particular um, American... Um, flapper of the 1930s and then the costumes were designed by this German woman called Charlotte Fleming who did cabaret and then just a whole lot of German productions she didn't kind of end up being you know having a big international kind of career but the Jeremy told me on the way out that cabaret had won a whole ton of Oscars that year which was in the 1973 Oscars but not best film which was the godfather and then he said to me um I said, oh, I haven't seen that either. And he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I watched The Godfather, which I'll come to in a sec, but I just wanted to say still on Cabaret. Um, it was also funny where, you know, people that are very famous, but they're of an era before you, and so you know them in a different capacity. So when Michael York came on, I was like, oh, it's Basil Exposition from, from um, Austin Powers. <laughs> and that was the only, t only thing I'd ever seen Michael York in was Austin Powers. And so Michael York was just an absolute revelation to me how completely incredible he was. And I think like a lot of good art too, it felt super contemporary. Even though it's a really old film, it felt very contemporary. Well, I mean, it's pretty twisted. Like, I mean, it would have been in the 70s, like a super kind of, there's a lot of just bed hopping and all sorts. It's like, yeah. And but she's a, very, she's a very independent kind of woman too. Yeah, but you're right. There is a, um, this contemporary edge to it. She's such an engaging kind of quicksilver character oh. that she could be from any era, really. Oh, just yeah. absolutely. And um, Joel Grey um, oh, yeah. is, you know. I mean, it was, again, one of those things. I remember we talked about Hamilton like this, where you see a number early in Hamilton and you go, well, I guess that's the showstopper. This was like that with Cabaret. Where they, so they do Vilcommon and I'm thinking, well, that's... Can't really get better than that, but I suppose you know they've got cabaret yet to come. So, I thought, mm. and then the next numbers, um, mine hair, and you're like, oh my god. So, and then it just keeps kind of going from there. But like, there's such a bold choice too early on, which is sort of a sign of confident filmmaking. And I don't know if stars allow it these days. But your first sighting of Liza Minnelli is just in the chorus. She's not, you know, she doesn't star in the opening number by any stretch. And that's kind of bold um, as well. And actually, even Olivia in that Xanadu clip, like she comes into it a long way in, which is hard to imagine these days that you'd put your star kind of, you know, so deep into it. Stand by for Lee's PhD the <laughs> thesis, a comparative work. <laughs> so, <laughs> ONJ and Liza Minnelli. So, The Godfather, which I assume you've right. seen. So, you must have, Jeremy must have really put the wind up you that night with the contempt, like, 
because you yeah, went and smartly did. watched it. Like, I, I mean, did, yeah. I could have told you for like 10 years to watch it and you'd then get around <laughs> to it, but Jeremy's like, you want to watch that? And she's like, Whoop, going home <laughs> to... Uh... So it was also, um, funnily enough, I mean, it, among... So again, in the 1973 Oscars, in the Best Supporting Actor category, which um, Joel Grey won for Cabaret, all of the dudes, except for Marlon Brando, who was the lead actor, all of the sons from Godfather were in that same category, every single one That's of them. That's tough, right? isn't it? Yeah, and it was kind of... We'll come to Marlon Brando in a sec, so I want to ask about Marlon Brando, but... She's Al got, Pac- like, 45 minutes of Marlon Brando <laughs> material, guys, so just uh, visit the conveniences now if you need to. But again, like, Al Pacino's probably golden era was maybe a bit before my age, and I... My jaw was on the floor at him. He, like Liza, every time he was on screen, you were like, that person is just busting out of the screen. Like, their presence is so overwhelming. I could just look at a loop of Al Pacino footage from that era. He wouldn't even have to be acting. He'd just be going to the shops or something. I would just, like, <laughs> wearing a three-piece suit, looking a bit dishevelled. Like, um, Jeremy's and my favourite movie of all time is Dog Day Afternoon, which is just peak Pacino in... What's it about, that film? Oh, it's... Very random. It's about a bank robbery. Al Pacino and a couple of his dudes decide they're going to rob a bank and they're going to run away and live forever on the proceeds. And it's a really hot day and they go into the bank and they get their guns out and the chief teller of the bank is this incredibly brassy, fantastic woman and everything goes wrong, like there isn't any money there and then they can't get out and the tellers start kind of playing up. And because Pacino is essentially quite a decent guy, he's kind of like getting everybody their asthma inhaler and, you know, and then it turns out that his crazy wife is sort of out there but he's also married again to this guy, um, which sort of, comes out during the film. It's completely nuts and it is peak perfect Pacino. Okay. And so, and from around that same era of Godfather. Correct. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was texting Jeremy afterwards and saying, one of the things that just blew my mind, so the Pacino character starts as the kind of clean-skinned son who's been in the military and he's not wanting to go into the family business and then he kind of turns. And I said to Jeremy, I, I, honestly... I don't know how Al Pacino's done it because other than the change of clothes, he appears to have gone from a very innocent-looking guy to a really sinister-looking psycho and I literally can't see a single thing different in his appearance. It was just blew my mind how he did it. No, acting, I guess. Well, okay. Just like, no, acting. Well, just like... I guess. <laughs> what was that funny line that... Um... You know, what's his name that you interviewed? This is a great uh, anecdote already. Um, uh, said about the guy on Succession, Jeremy Strong. Oh, Brian Cox. Brian said Cox, who just Strong, said, yeah. like, <laughs> these guys jumping through all these hoops to do method acting. And he said, have you thought of just, you know, pretending? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just acting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, completely. But, like, it's funny that you should just be watching The Godfather because I've been watching The Offer which is um, a TV series. It's like a drama that is basically about the making of The Godfather, which wow. I think you should maybe move on to because I think you're ready yeah. now that you've taken the crucial step of seeing The Godfather. Yeah. yeah. So it, a drama or a doco? Is it? It's a drama. A drama? Yeah. Okay. So it's about this guy, Al Ruddy, who is a completely bizarre character. So he, was, he worked in construction, but then he somehow got involved. He went and hung out at the Chateau Marmont a bit because he's incredibly handsome. And then he kind of fell in with all these filmmaking type people. And he, um, I may have left out a few details, but he, he then, no, no, no. I mean, like I just, he then, he pitched the idea for Hogan's Heroes. Like he was the creator of Hogan's Heroes. 
which was made in the 60s, which is pretty bold given that, like, it's a comedy about a Nazi comp concentration camp, you know, um, starring all these Jewish actors. Like, it's completely... Uh, still just a mystery to me that you could make Hogan's heroes, you know. Yeah. Don't you reckon? Like, anyway, um, it was his idea. Um, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't really given the making of Hogan's heroes that much but I mean, thought, but... But I watched I mean, a lot of Hogan's heroes in the 70s after school, and, I mean, it's... It's incredibly irreverent about, you know, World War II and Nazis. I mean, it's just, I don't know. Anyway, just a thought. Um, so he created Hogan's Heroes and then he became a producer. He got hired by Paramount or something. And his next, well, one of his next ideas was to make a movie of The Godfather, which was, had just become this massive, unexpected, runaway literary success by Mario Puzo, who'd been, you know, kind of starving to death in a garret, essentially, but then got this massive breakthrough hit with The Godfather. And Ruddy decided, well, let's make a movie out of this. But he got a huge amount of um, opposition from... Because basically, there was a lot of mob opposition <laughs> to oh. this film being made. And so he got all these threats and, you know no crew will work on this movie and then um, Frank Sinatra was really pissed off because the um, character, like the entertainer character is clearly based on him. And so, oh, right. and so the first couple of episodes of this series is just Al Ruddy running around trying to get this movie made and there's this great moment where they're trying to work out who's going to play the son and he... Um, and. Francis Ford Coppola, who is dragged onto the project, really wants Pacino, but the studio doesn't want this kid Pacino. And then you see his screen test, and it's like the actor playing Pacino is also spectacular. So it's this amazing moment. Oh, okay. That, so where's that on? Where do I watch that? Uh, I wrote this down because I always forget. It's on... Uh, oh, no, I haven't written it down. Oh, okay. <laughs> and what's it called? Just the, Google it, mate. The, and it's called um, The Offer. It's called The Offer. The Offer, yeah, okay. Yeah. But I think it's right. on... Paramount, thank Paramount, you so thank much. You. Can I just ask, and I know we're going to run out of time, but can I just ask quickly about Marlon Brando? Because I'm ashamed to say I don't think I've all seen another Marlon Brando film either. So you haven't seen On the Waterfront? No, I've okay. not. So... Um, does Marlon Brando always talk like he talks in The Godfather or was that affected for The Godfather? Um, I think he's wearing a lot of cotton wool in his, in his mouth for The Godfather. He's in the God, in the, on the waterfront, he's a bit sort of tough mumbly but not as... Not as know, mumbly. And, no. and kind of high-pitched in that high-pitched kind of way of speaking that he's got. Mm, not that I recall. It's a bit more sort of breathy. Like, I could have been a contender. Right. You know? uh, okay. um, but, like, he just... In his last years, what was that? The island of Dr. Moreau? Was it like, wow, that was not good, was it? I mean, I, don't know. <laughs> I just got a, he just got a bit sort of resplendently nuts, uh, <laughs> which I guess all the, all the really proper good crazies do. Oh, Pacino's really hung in there, though. Like, I mean, he's done a few. I mean, yeah. when they start doing screwball comedies, I think, are you all right? <laughs> But, I mean, I guess Michael Caine does everything and just, you know... Robert De Niro did that very successfully with Analyse This and... Meet the Fockers. Was he yeah. in Meet the Fockers? Yeah, Meet the Parents, yep. Yeah. Meet, meet the, the Parents? Yeah. Oh, Parents, yeah, Fockers? Yeah, he, he was funny. He's Are they funny. interchangeable? But part, yeah. part of the funniness comes oh, from that favorite. he's a menacing Have guy. Have you ever seen The King of Comedy? Is that with Billy Crystal? No, no. Um, oh, my no. God. It's the best film. It is completely bizarre and... Robert De Niro is in it, and um, and the comedian 
Jerry Lewis. No. You know, like from from I know, well, I know from, I've heard from of Jerry Dean Lewis, Martin and Jerry Lewis. Yeah, I've heard and of Jerry so Lewis. in this film, um, De Niro is the buffoon and Jerry Lewis is the asshole. Like they oh. so and Jerry Lewis is a famous comedian and talk show host, and De Niro is this sort of like completely obsessed fan and De Niro lives in his mother's basement and pretends that to have a comedy act like he he rehearses to himself and his big aim is to meet Jerry Lewis and like get spotted and he ends up basically just um you know bad stuff happens <laughs> but also um yeah I mean it's 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 an incredibly great film. Okay. I'm actually going to declare movie afternoon at my house where I'm just going to make Dog you watch a couple of these. Dog afternoon and King of Comedy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We're going to do it. Good. going to do it. <laughs> Sandra Bernhardt is in it as a completely demented fan. She is uh, top shelf. Anyway, uh, we're going on and on. Sorry, everybody is just like, oh, this is like the most boring dinner party ever. I mean, it's... <laughs> Oh, that, that reminds me of something very amusing I said the other day. I can't remember what, but it was very droll. Reminds very me of droll. a film made 50 years ago that I just got around to seeing. <laughs> um, but, look, I mean, one thing about The Godfather, with the honourable exception of Diane Keaton, who is spectacular, um, and you have to watch the next two now, obviously, and The Offer, like, pretty, like... They don't massively pass the Bechdel test. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> no, there's no women. No. There's the, the girl that Al Pacino marries and... And gets blown up. Yeah, well, Sorry, I wasn't going to say that because I didn't want to spoil it for well, anyone on, that hasn't seen Godfather, but, She you know. seemed lovely. Um, but I have some good news for you, which is that I... I've been in a television rut for some time and I'm absolutely busting out of that rut. I've had such a couple of good weeks of television. Oh, great. Okay, good, because I'm needing something to watch. Right. Well, I've got some, like, and they all, I'm I'm in an absolute passing the Bechdel test streak. So I'm just going to throw some at you. Hit me, babe. Right. So the thing that I started watching, like, two nights ago um, is called Bad Sisters. Right? Are you on it already? Oh, So okay. Sharon Horgan, who is, um, you know, a fantastic Irish comic actress, um, has been got in some... something else you've talked about, I reckon. Yes, she has, and I knew you'd I'll Google ask it while me you because talk. I can't remember what I'll, the name I'll, of that show is. But I'll Google right, it while you talk. She's a comic genius. Catastrophe, Catastrophe that's exactly that's right. Yep. Thank God, you. come and join our quiz trivia night thing because <laughs> you would be useful. Um, so uh, in this series, which is apparently some deal that she's signed with Apple TV that involves her just like produce, they've obviously just gone, well, you're a genius, come and make good stuff for us. So this seems to be the first iteration. And it is a comedy and it's about five Irish sisters. And um, they have an evil, one of them is married to this total asshole and he dies early on. And then you start to realise that the sisters have been plotting to murder him. And so as you work through, what you really can't work out is how did they do it? Like, so it's like a really back-to-front whodunit oh, sort of thing. But it's also, it's got that kind of Anne Enright, shambolic family oh, hilarity. It's very, very, very funny. And I only two episodes have been released and I watched them both and then oh. I was a bit like... Oh, okay. It was like already 11 o'clock. Bad Sisters? Bad Sisters. Okay. Absolute hard recommend. And the other thing that I'm watching that I also am 
just desperately in love with is called Loot. And it's st- it stars Maya Rudolph. Um, now, she's another sort of Saturday Night Live lady. And the premise of this show is that she is married to this billionaire sort of tech startup bro, right? And they've been, <laughs> like, they were childhood sweethearts. And he's, you know, got incredibly rich. He's basically, you know, one of those guys. And she's married to him. And they are unfathomably rich. I mean, like, comedically rich. And she has a big birthday party, which is planned by him. He gives her a yacht for her birthday and this incredible party at which Seal performs. And just (laughs) as Seal's about to come on, (laughs) she discovers that he's having an affair. And so there's this great comedic moment where Seal's just like, can I just, um, and then they're having this massive fight in front of everybody. And then Seal's just like, I'll get my coat then. (laughs) (laughs) Great cameo. But um, she then sues him for divorce and she gets billions of dollars. And so the series is about her deciding what to do with this money and she enters the the charitable space with, you know, hilarious results. But there's just, I mean, she is absolutely brilliant. The startup bro husband is played by Adam Scott from Parts and Recreation, who I just love with just a crushing <laughs> love. I adore that man. And um, it's the whole series is created by a guy called Alan Yang, who was the creator of, co-creator of Parks and Recreation and also of Master of None. Yes. Right. Yep. Genius. And it is, you know, when you watch television where it's just it makes you happy because there's nothing obvious. The jokes are multi-layered and funny and they're all in good hands. Everybody pulls it off. And they've spent a huge amount of money. Like, the real estate porn is just ridiculous. And one of the funny running gags of the show is that um, Maya Rudolph, who's kind of like daffy and well-intentioned, um, she has David Chang, you know, the creator of Mamafuku, as her chef, like he's just, he's just always there in the kitchen. And then she'll come home, she'll be like, oh, what have we got? And he'll be like, I've prepared a froth of sea urchin with, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she'll just say, can you just make me a cheeseburger? And he'll be going, and then he'll just like, it's just like the best cameo because he just shows up every now and again being just massively underappreciated. It's just David Chang in her kitchen. Hello. If I was massively rich, I reckon that would be the first thing I'd spend money on would be somebody to just cook all my meals. Really? Yep, and I'd just give them a brief and go, okay, I want to be like low-fat and healthy, but it has to be delicious. And I yeah. have to not taste, it has to not taste low-fat. It, okay. ta- it has to taste like butter, salt but and sugar, you know what but would be healthy. actually happen? You'd be over their shoulder, are you going to use, oh, are you going to use capers in that? Do you know what? I don't reckon, I, I'd be doing my cello practice. I find that <laughs> margarine's a little more spreadable. I'm just like, Can you imagine how I'm gonna, insufferable I'm going to be now? Like, I'll be there at 5.30, I've just got to do half an hour of my cello practice. And your neighbours will just be like, oh, she goes again. <laughs> or her vibrato's all off again. <laughs> Um, And the other thing that I've been watching, which is actually making me scream with laughter because it's so confusing, but also just, (laughs) I would say it brings up good memories, but it doesn't because it's awful. But like it's a series (laughs) called Yellow Jackets. Right. And it's about a girls footy team that are going to a big tournament and they crash in the wilderness in a car, in in a plane. They go down and then it's just like, it's just... A comedy or is it? Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's got, like, it's got Juliette Lewis in it 
And oh, it's got yeah. Christina Ritchie in oh, it. Oh, I hate both those people. Why <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you going to love this? Look, I think you're unlikely to watch it after I tell you about it. Oh, really? It. Okay. But it's just like, you know, that we've got that thing where suddenly there are like three movies at once about the same thing. And you're like, yep. how are there so many Winston Churchill films at once? Yep. But like, this has been brewing for a couple of years, like this whole like girls version of Lord of the Flies, right? Because I looked it up, I, thought, I remember something about this. Is this the movie that we were talking about a few years ago? In about 2017, there was this sort of like report that these two dudes were making a remake of Lord of the Flies, but it was all girls. And every woman in the world just goes, well, how would that work? Like, <laughs> would any of that shit happen? <laughs> and in fact, it was so funny that this writer for The New Yorker did this absolutely classically laugh-out-loud funny column about what Lord of the Flies would look like <laughs> with girls, right? And I looked it up because I remember just being just absolutely prostrate with laughter at it at the time. And the writer's name is, oh, God, I thought I'd written it down. And have I? No. Oh, Rian Conch. I think her surname is Conch. Conch. K-O-N-C. So it's either Conch or Conch. Imagine if her last name is actually Conch. Anyway, conch, yeah. this only struck me when I was looking up. I'm like, oh, how did I miss that at the time? But anyway, um, so she starts off and like, you know how Piggy has asthma and then he gets bullied because he's got asthma. Oh, I can't this really remember now. This is the kid now. who, you know, with the glasses yeah. that gets smashed and bad stuff yeah. happens to him. I mean, he just I gets can't, just relentlessly can't bullied. Asthma, he's got asthma. Yeah, and um, gets sort of bullied because of the asthma. Right. But in the first part of this lady's, you know, recreation or imagining of what a girl's only Lord of the Flies, um, wait, oh my God, Ralphie said, rummaging through her purse. You know, this is totally random, but I think actually, yeah, here it is. I totally have an inhaler. It's from when I had bronchitis a couple of years ago. It's just been rattling around in my purse. You're very welcome to it. <laughs> End of problem. And then... They're talking about, in this column, they're talking about the conch. And one of them says, maybe we should make a rule that um, if you holding the conch, it means you get to speak. Maybe that way we can make sure that nobody interrupts us. <laughs> but who, ventured Simone, is here to interrupt us? <laughs> <laughs> the girls, the girls looked around. It was true. There was no one. <laughs> and there's also this great passage where they're talking about, um, you know, one of them says, one of the rules of our island should be that there's, number one, there's no murder. And then another one says, are you for real? Like, who's going to murder us out? Like, I mean, the whole aim of this exercise is to survive as if we're going to be murdering each other. And they all burst into peals of laughter. And for the rest of their time on the island... The, the only time, the only way, if they were ever feeling down, somebody just had to say the word murder and that all burst into laughter. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Anyway, so I loved that column when it was, when it was, back when it was published. And of course, the, the movie or with the two dudes remaking has just never 
I've, no more has been heard of it. As far as I've poked around to see if it had ever happened, and it doesn't seem to have yet. It might have just gone to that great parking station of you know <laughs> um, Hollywood. But um, also, there was another series that came out a couple of years ago, or 2020, called The Wilds, which apparently is another one of girls like crashed in the wilderness, obliged yeah. to resort to cannibalism, whatever. But like this one, The Yellow Jackets, is. There are so many different threads to the story. So there's Christina Ritchie, who's kind of like a, you know, she's a bit of a busybody. Juliette Lewis, who's just a hot mess, uh, was then and is now. And um, so there's kind of, there's flashbacks to what happened when they were all in the wilderness. There's the today where they all escaped, or most of them escaped, and they're all living their own lives, but keeping the deadly secret of the stuff that they got up to in the wilderness, which got quite dark. Uh, and then each of them has got their own like bizarre like storyline. So it's like an incredibly multi-layered offering. So I'm just laughing because it's just so much drama and I just think this is tiring. I can't quite keep track. But I've watched three episodes, so I can't be hating it, right? Well, no. I don't know if I want to watch it, though, based on what you've said. Yeah, look, I mean, it's just, it's a bit, you just think, oh, okay, sorry, what? And now what? And then what? And then there's, there's a lot of, I mean, there hasn't been any cannibalism happening yet, but one gets the sense, like, there's a lot of um, promo shots of people, like, tearing at chunks of flesh oh. with their, and, and, and there's a little bit of, you know, the occult involved, which I just think, it's like, you know, when you're going out, look into the mirror and just take one thing off. Like, and I think maybe the occult, like there's enough going on. Is there anyone finding locks of their childhood hair snipped off by them? <laughs> I'm still not ready to talk about that quite. Um, I'm just like, you know, there could be hair missing from my hair and I wouldn't know. So... I've taken it and it's with Mandy. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, that's very, that's very funny and weird. Now, there's only um, really, I think, one thing left for us to do for t tonight, and that's for me to say to... I didn't actually ask, is your name pronounced Cheval or Cheval? Cheval. As in Maurice. No, that's Chevalier. Forget I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Cheval. And then that's to head off stage and then text you Annabelle Crabb's number so that you've got the box set. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us tonight. Thank you. <laughs> Where's Umberto? Where's our personal cellist? We wanted him to come out for the curtain call, but he's... Oh, here he comes. Oh, here he yeah, comes. He <laughs>